traveling and so on, or we stop traveling and so on. Um, yes. So we're going to go into today and talk about some more about the covenant of grace. Um, if I can get it working. Yeah, there you go. Covenant of grace. We've... I'm taking you through this series on the covenant of grace. Before we get into that, let's, re- let's pray, shall we? A few people have got COVID. Um, David and uh, Carol Collins, um, Gary and Sue Brown, one to others as well. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace that sustains us and keeps us, and we do believe that uh, our friends and our brothers and sisters will come through this attack of COVID. We thank you that it's not the, 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 the dreadful thing that it was a couple of years ago, but we pray for us. But we pray for their su- sustaining and their recovery. We pray for others who are away or sick, traveling at the moment. You'll be with them and keep them, Lord. We pray for those who are mourning, and there will be funerals this week. John Mills' mum on Tuesday, Herschel on Thursday. We pray you'll sustain those families by your great grace, Lord. We give us hearts that quicken up and chase after truth now. Holy Spirit, come and inspire us all as we think through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This covenant of grace thing. The Bible clearly states that God set in place the salvation of people for himself through the giving of his Son before he made the world. In other words, before Adam sinned, God had ordained mercy. His covenant was ordained and operative before he made Adam and Eve. He was saddened by the fall, but he wasn't surprised by it because he already had salvation in Jesus organized. His covenant is then revealed over time in installments, and those are the installments we'll look at, if I can, over the coming months. Like Just as a seven-sealed scroll in Revelations opens seal after seal and until it's all done, and it's completed. So his covenant is revealed part, part by part by part until it's all complete in Jesus, of course. We've already looked at Adam and then at Noah. In the generations that came after Adam and Eve, humanity was divided between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. When those two lines of humanity began to intermarry and wickedness was increasing on the earth, it was time for God to press the reset button. He wiped out by the flood every living and breathing creature apart from Noah and his wife, their sons and their wives, and the creatures that the Lord sent into the ark. And from that boatload of humanity and creatures, the earth was repopulated. The Lord revealed his covenant to Noah. Not all of it, part of it. Noah was at that time the head of the whole human race. He gave covenant promises and responsibilities to Noah. And since Noah was the head of the human race, those responsibilities and those promises are for the whole of the human race. And he gave a sign. He hung his bow in the sky, the rainbow. And if you want to pick up on those two, we already did, you can go to our website, pick up on the audio video of those two installments, or you can contact me, I'll give you notes. Centuries later, it's time to God to hit the reset button again. Not this time by wiping away the, the many human nations now in the world. The God doesn't order that, but the creation of a new godly nation among the nations to be born, to be descended from Abraham and Sarah. This is the next great opening up of his covenant of grace. Now, there's too much in God's dealings with Abraham for me to cover today, 
So I've had to split this into two parts, and maybe it should even be more, but I'll try to do it in two. I hope to complete talking about the covenant of grace with regard to Abraham and his descendants on July the 17th, next time up. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find an interesting verse there. It calls Jesus the son of Abraham. Listen to these words. The generation of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. That's a strange way to start the gospel, isn't it? The book of Genesis is divided in sections by that same statement. These are the generations of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob. Matthew picks it up as if he's carrying on from Genesis. and says, these are the generations of Jesus. Except he's working backwards from Jesus to his forebears. The whole story arrives with Jesus at the destination. And for, to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, Jesus had to be descendant of David, and therefore he was a rightful, the, the rightful King of Israel, and a descendant of Abraham, because then he was the heir of God's covenant and promises, which were made to Israel. They were gave it, given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, then to Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons, and from them came the nation of Israel. So the promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. He's the heir to them. We'll come back to whose children of Abraham in a while. So, Abraham. To follow the life of Abraham through Genesis would be a series in itself, and, but this is about the covenant of grace, so I need to give a few hints of biography along the way, but not tell you the whole story. All right? Just concentrate on when God appeared to Abraham and made him his covenant partner. Now, I'm going to use his name interchangeably because I do, I'm confusing myself. Let me explain. This man had the name Abram, which means exalted father. But many years later, God changed his name to Abraham, meaning father of many, when he didn't even have a son yet. I may slip into one or the other, but there was an order to this. He was first of all Abram, then Abraham. Abram was born and raised in Ur of the Chaldees. It's a city located in the land of Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. In fact, it's right down by the Kuwaiti Gulf, but a few hundred, meet, hundred, yard, hundred miles inland because the Gulf didn't stretch out that far in those days. But it is in that area. Prior to his conversion, Abraham was a worshipper of idols. We know that. Scripture tells us that. But God appeared to him and spoke to him, <coughs> and Abraham became a believer. And he was commanded by God to leave Mesopotamia or, or the Chaldees, for a new land that God promised to show him. And here it is in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your kindred, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Next bit, sorry. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's a sevenfold promise there, but four times the word bless or blessing appears. God promised, promised to bless Abram and make him a blessing, and the final bit is make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. What God was doing with this man was going to release God's blessing, God's purpose, to all nations, all families. What God started in Abram would, within a few generations, become national, a nation called Israel, but one day go global with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Through a godly community, this Israel, which has a changing shape of meaning through Scripture, founded from this one believer, God would bring blessing to all the families and nations of the earth. That's a huge promise, isn't it? So acting upon God's command, Abraham initially moves with his father Terah to Haran, which is in northern Turkey. Do you want to see a map? There you go. Ur of the Chaldees, down by Kuwait, right up to, to, to southern Turkey. Not, did I say northern Turkey? To Haran, and then finally back down to Canaan. It seems that Terah was, uh, uh, Abraham's father, was a reluctant pilgrim, or maybe weak or sickly, or just old. And they stay at Haran for some years, but when Terah dies, Abraham then moves on to Canaan. Only then has he really left his country, his kindred, and his father's household. When he arrived at Canaan, the Lord again spoke to him. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I will give this land to your offspring. Remember, Abraham hasn't got a child yet. I'll give this land to your offspring. So Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him there. Notice that Abraham built an altar and worshipped the Lord. Abraham lived in tents all of his life. The only structures he left behind in his, in his travels were the altars he built to the Lord. What we have in this life is temporary. But what we have in Christ is eternal. The Lord promised the land to him and his, to his descendants. This is repeated a little later after Abram separated from Lot. There's the division between Abram's people and Lot's people because they were all shepherds, they all had flocks. So Abram said, choose where you want. He chose the plains and Abram chose the hills. And after Lot had departed, Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram, now lift up your eyes from the place where you are. Look to the north and to the south and the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. This Israel thing that God's doing, how big is it going to get? Beyond numbering. Beyond numbering. That's another huge Abraham moves on to Hebron, which becomes his base, and builds another altar and worships the Lord there. Sodom, meanwhile, Lot has given up shepherding, and he now lives in Sodom, and Abraham has to go and rescue his nephew from having been taken captive by a king of Babylon called Chedorlaomer. And when he comes back from that, from that battle, Abraham meets and gives tithes to, and is blessed by Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of the Most High. Think about that in a while. Now, the reason I called out to, to Chinonsa this morning is because this is one of the verses, right? After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Some versions have your reward will be very great. But most of the ones that I, that I used put it this way, your, your very great reward. But Abram replied, O Lord God, what can, I give, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, his chief servant, was, his steward, was going to be the, the heir. I, I don't have any offering, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who comes from your body will be your heir. The Lord took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens, count the stars if you're able. He said to him, so shall your offspring be. He repeats the same sand or 
dust analogy. Then there's this incredible verse, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham will have a son, and from that son's line, a nation will arise. And that's where we have to leave the narrative today. Almost at the beginning of Genesis Genesis 15. Years later, though, just to bring a bit in from later on. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. We haven't dealt with all of the covenant making. That We've got some more to do on that. But what promises did God make to Abraham? You will have a son. I'm going to give you this land. You're, from, from your descendants will arise a nation. And in fact, in the end, a numberless nation. A vast nation. And your family will be a family of blessing to the families of the earth. Your community will bless the community of the earth. However, Israel's possession of the land was not, as many people say, unconditional. For the law given through Moses set conditions. This is the covenant you must keep. And if you don't, the land will spew you out, was the word that God gave to Moses. The land will throw you out, like throwing, someone throwing up. When they broke covenant with the Lord, they lost possession of the land. Now, we need to look at the New Testament to understand how these promises are fulfilled in Jesus and then in us. Interesting thing. Abraham is mentioned 65 times in Genesis. Then Abraham, 124 times. But 77 times Abraham's mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned a lot. There's a lot of references back to him. Because what I'm going to say to you this morning is we get to live the way Abraham did. By faith. Not by law, which came in as a law-keeping exercise to manage Israel as a nation. We get to live by faith. So who are the heirs of Abraham? The immediate heirs of Abraham were Isaac, then Jacob, who was renamed Israel when he wrestled with God, then then his 12 sons. It was a nation called Israel that came out of Egyptian captivity and entered the land which God had promised to Abraham. But the New Testament does not teach that the natural descendants of Abraham are the heirs to the promises of God. It actually says Jesus is the heir and all believe in him are co-heirs, whether Jew or Gentile. Jesus himself warned the people of his time not to depend upon their natural descent from Abraham as they're standing with God. Jesus said God is able to make sons for Abraham from these stones if he wants to. He also said, Jesus said, many Gentile nations would join Abraham and the prophets in the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul argues in Galatians this point. So I should have gone there. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, but and your seed, meaning one who is Messiah, Christ. That's an interesting interpretation that Paul, how'd you get that? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, we'll shut up then. <laughs> Paul interprets scripture as saying the promise was not made to a people, person. And Jesus is in himself the heir of Abraham. 
and the son of Abraham. And we get to be, trusting in Jesus, children of Abraham. We're part of the promise that God made to him to have a numberless community of people of faith who are loving the same God Abraham loved, except that we know a lot more than Abraham knew now. Jesus is the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3.15, and he's the seed, according to Scripture, and heir promised to Abraham. And then Jesus himself called himself the true vine, the true Israel. Only those in him are the people of God. Paul reviews and applies that analogy in Romans, using the olive tree, another symbol for Israel. Believers in Jesus Messiah, the Son of God, whether from a Jewish or a Gentile background, are, here I'm just going to give you a run of scriptures, they're in the notes which are down there if you want set afterwards. We are the Israel of God. We are one new man in Messiah Jesus, made up of Jews and Gentiles, but one new man. We are one body, no more division. In Jesus, Messiah, Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. God's made something new in Jesus. We are God's people. You say, well, what land do we get? Well, we get the whole thing. Not just a bit in the Middle East. We inherit the whole earth. In the meanwhile, God blesses us so that we will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Nations are saved family by family. God's covenant promises are not strictly ours, but ours in Jesus Messiah. He's the heir of the promises. Romans 8, we are co-heirs with him. They belong to him. We inherit them in him. So don't think you can snatch any verse of scripture and oh, make of that what I want to make it. No, you've got to interpret it through Jesus. How does this come to me through Jesus? How is this applied for, for me through Jesus? We, we handle the promises of God as being Christ-centered, not, not outcome-centered, not trying to get something we think we want. Or, you know. To pick up more on all of that, you're going to have to read a lot of Scripture, Galatians, Romans, and Ephesians. All right. What did God require of Abraham? Every covenant has requirements. None of them are, in that sense, tr- truly unconditional. Though I will correct that a bit next week. Abraham believed God and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. So, faith. And then he said, walk before me and be blameless, which means wholehearted, complete, or just walk, walk with maturity. Be a grown-up. Take your responsibilities. Faith. I've said a lot about faith in our gatherings as Lighthouse over more than 12 years now. So I'm not going to add much more to it than this. It's not magic. It's not the power of our words. It's trust and dependence upon God and His Word. Abraham believed the Lord. He didn't believe in himself. He didn't just even believe in his faith. He believed in the Lord. He overcame himself because he believed in the Lord. He was an old man, frankly, impotent. But God gave him power to have children. He overcame himself by trusting in the Lord. Then this word righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted for righteous matters because it's applied to us in Scripture. Four times in Jessamine. It's quoted. Applying to us. We're put in the same bracket. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. We too believe in Jesus and it's credited to us as righteousness. Now we know that Abraham was not perfect. He wasn't without fault. He sometimes lied and schemed. He failed to trust the Lord. He made errors of judgment. Aren't you glad the Bible's so honest? 
Every saint in Scripture is portrayed like Oliver Cromwell's portrait, warts and all. Only Jesus is perfect, fulfilling all righteousness for us in our place. But Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness is not law or rule-keeping. God did not give a rule book to Abraham. Okay, here they are. Here's the list. The requirement he made was this. First of all, to trust him, and Abraham started doing that. And then, walk before me. Walk maturely. Walk in accordance with who I've called you to be and to do. That was it. Where's the rules? Where's where's, Where's the list? Interesting that. We call that charismatic obedience. You have to be led by the Spirit. What does the New Testament say? Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. So guess what? We are living the way Abraham lived. Being led. When he says, walk before me, you, you've got to, you know, if, it, if you say to a child, walk before me, they're going to do this all the time, aren't they? They're going to check back. They're going to look, look at you. They're going to listen to you. Unless they're, you know, a bit foolhardy like some of our kids. A wise child keeps checking. When God said, walk before me, that's the picture. He's a son walking before a father and he has to keep checking. Charismatic obedience, being led by God's word, led by the Spirit. This is the, the life of faith is a way. It's a path. It's not a rule book. In an argument that Paul makes that runs almost through the whole of the book of Romans. He shows the mistake of the Jewish people in his time particularly, which to imagine that having been given the law, they could keep the law and so merit being righteous. Earn our way through. Paul brings a number of answers to that. He says Abraham was justified through faith, not through law. Law came hundreds of years after Abraham. Then he says, you've got another law working in you called sin. You can't get there. You can't do it. So let me summarize here. Righteousness is found through faith in God's grace through Christ, not by keeping the law. That's why legalism is so stupid. I'm, going to, I'm just going to live by this set of rules and I'll be okay. Do you know what it is? Some of the sects have all these rule books, you know. You, don't, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Now there's reasons why we shouldn't do some of those things, but we're not living by law. Righteousness is found through faith in Christ, not by keeping law. But having been accounted righteous by God through faith in his Son, we enter into a life of righteousness. We learn to walk in his ways. Which isn't about following a set of rules. It's about checking in, asking our way through, finding out what pleases the Lord, figuring out what is good and what is not good, discerning good from evil. Righteousness is this. This is my definition. Right Right relationship leading to right conduct or behavior. Right relationship leading to right conduct and behavior. Every relationship defines the conduct that is appropriate. Marriage. Parenthood. Every relationship comes with not a set of rules, but a set of definitions that this is what work, this is what's good here this is what works here 
We are rightly connected to God through Jesus. That leads us to rightly conduct ourselves towards him and before him. Then we're rightly connected to others and we rightly conduct ourselves towards them and before them. God and then others. So guess what? The law, really, Ten Commandments, I mean, the whole of the books of Exodus and Leviticus and so on, and even if you go to just, just to the Ten Commandments, all of that even can be summarized in two sentences. Do you know that? In the book of Deuteronomy, God, God gives them to us, and Jesus, when he was teaching, quoted them on a, a number of occasions. Here they are, two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second one is love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law of God can be summed up in those two sentences. Loving God, so you're figuring out what pleases him. Being led by the Spirit, loving your neighbor the way you love yourself. You put your interests equal, equal with your neighbor. That's the, the law there, equal. All right. Who's my neighbor? That's interesting because an expert in the law uh, quoted those two commandments to Jesus, said, you've, you've answered correctly, said Jesus, go and do those and you'll, you'll live. All right? And he wanted to justify himself. He asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus responds by telling a story. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan, don't we? Okay. Did you know that the Samaritan to the Jews was like a hate figure? So making the Samaritan the good guy was, making, was like making the pantomime villain the hero. Yeah? Jesus does that. Guy, guy gets beaten up, robbed, left. Two of his fellow Jews come along and ignore him. A Samaritan comes. You can imagine the Jews around when Jesus is telling his story, going, what is he saying? A Samaritan came along, took the guy, took him to a inn, made sure he was cared for, left money. Who was the neighbor, Jesus says. And the man answered, the one who did him good. He wouldn't even use the word. The one who did him good. Jesus said, go and do the same. Your neighbor is simply your fellow human being. Now, many of us live with neighbors. We don't even know who they are. All right? We do know the neighbors either side of us and another one as well. But, anyway. but, you know, we can live in the place for ages and not get to know the neighbors. But our neighbor is our fellow human being. In fact, biblically, our neighbor is the person who is not just the person next door or the person you like or the person you know. It's the person you don't know, you don't like, who's nothing like you, doesn't have the same values, doesn't live in the same country. In fact, they're coming into your country. Those people are your neighbors. All right? In fact, the law gives commandment about how we should handle foreigners and immigrants and strangers. Treat them as a neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. Therefore, in the New Testament, a number of Bible writers in the New Testament use this kind of thought here. That because that, phrase, that one sentence fulfills all the, all the laws about how we treat other people, love fulfills the law. If you really set about loving people as you love yourself, you don't need a rule book. Love fulfills the law. But guess what? Jesus had the third. Did you ever figure that out? Jesus adds a third great commandment. A new commandment I give you. Love one another 
As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how I exactly how I understand those words in the New Commandment. Jesus is not, not adding an 11th to the 10th. He's adding a third to the 10th. The object of this love is not your neighbour, but your fellow Christian, your brother and sister. The standard of this love is not as you love yourself, but as Jesus loves you. It's altogether a different standard. And there's a reason why we should do this, so that the world may see that we live in a different way. We're the godly nation among the nations. In a world which doesn't know righteousness and doesn't keep God's ways, the evident shared love and service of Christians one for another is like a shining light. So please, don't think of rules and regulations when you think about righteousness. It's being rightly connected to God through faith in Jesus' Son, rightly conducting ourselves before Him, rightly connected to others, conducting those relationships on the basis of words of Jesus again, do to others as you would have them do to you. I remember when I was at Bible College, being at open door, open, open airs and things, and someone said, "Oh, I, I don't need this religious stuff. I just, do, I just live by do as you would be done by." And I said, "You're living by the words of Jesus, there, my friend." He said that first. Yeah? Do to others as you would have him do to you, <clears throat> but also being rightly connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ, going beyond loving others like, as I love myself. And well, I'll, I'll, I'll be generous and I'll give some to them. What about being sacrificial and giving more than I, than, I, than I really would otherwise give? Because Jesus' love inspires me to go beyond my measure to his measure. Righteousness is not a standard to be attained, a mark we have to hit. It's a way of relationships. It's the way of love, both Godward and otherward. It's a matter of character which is seen in deeds, truth, justice, mercy, humility, peace. I want to mention while we're here, Abraham and Genesis. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Jacob in chapter 28 vowed to the Lord that he would do so too. You say, well, what about in the middle? What about the the son and the grand... Well... I'm pretty sure that Isaac did too. Tithing was understood and practiced by the patriarchs. Hundreds of years before the law came, I would say, tithing is law. Tithing was practiced by the patriarchs hundreds of years before the law. The law required tithes and far more. It's been calculated, I haven't done it, someone else did, that with all that was required by statute of an Israelite, he would be bringing altogether more than 25% of his increase each year to the Lord. All of the offerings and things as well as the tithe. Abraham tithed hundreds of years before the law was given. We live as Abraham did, by faith, not by law. Tithing for me is a matter of faith and covenant faithfulness. I'm putting back into the hands of he who's given into my hands. We return this significant proportion of all he's given us back to him, into his storehouse, his community, to provide together for our shared interest in the gospel, our gathering together, the support of those who work among us. And yes, we are going to be hiring a new pastor, we hope so, and to do good to the world and to be a blessing to the world together. When we tithe, we are not keeping a law. We are walking in the faith of Abraham, keeping faith and covenant loyalty with the Lord our provider. 
Okay, I'm almost there. The law had a core to it. Those two great commandments, Jesus had the third. But there's also a phrase in the scriptures that comes particularly through the, the Jeremiah scriptures about the new covenant. And there's a core to the covenant. These prophetic words. <clears throat> they will be my people and I will be their God. When God chose Abraham, you are going to be mine and I'm going to be your God. It's that relationship. That's the relationship, the covenant relationship that God draws every single born-again person into. To be his child, to be their father. You'll be mine and I will be your God. We sing it in the blessing, don't we? To your children and your children and your children. What, what, where does that come from? It comes from these Abrahamic promises. That God wanted to start something that would be passed on generation to generation to generation. Yet that is not without a battle. That's not without faith and prayer and endurance. Hebrews 6.12 says, we inherit God's promises through faith and endurance. And faith includes praying. So we, 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 we perceive God's, God's, God's promise, we, we, we like, take hold of it, we, 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 we believe it, we then begin to pray and we begin to trust and we begin to look for God's answers. And that way. Let me say to you that we should pray and believe for our children to become those born of God on the basis of these promises, but they are not automatic. We need to inherit them through, through faith and prayer and endurance. Finally, if we've received the grace of God in and through the Lord Jesus, we're called to live in and by that grace, to walk before the Lord, to live an open life and a wholehearted life towards him. The Bible calls us children of Abraham. We are part of Abraham's promised inheritance, those millions, billions that God spoke of. Those who share the same faith, right, faith and righteousness by the same grace and mercy of God. Except Abraham's faith was almost entirely set on future events. Someone who would come, some things that would happen, a nation that would be delivered from bondage. But our faith is based on things that have already been accomplished. Jesus came. He lived. He died for us. He rose again for us. Through faith in him, we're accepted by God. We, now in him, get to live a new life. But here's my thought to close. Do you hear this today as God's word to you, to us? You know, I will be their God and they will be my people. Listen, he, put, he puts it this, as a personal level. God works corporately and personally, individually. Can you hear this in your heart personally today? What God said to Abraham. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. I'm your father, be my child. Walk before me and be blameless. Be mature, act maturely, act wisely, act appropriately, because you are mine now. Amen? Let's pray together. Let me just give you a moment to anyone who's not yet turned your life over to Jesus. I've expressed the gospel very simply in different ways this morning. But if your life doesn't belong to him, it should. It needs to. You need to surrender yourself to him.
Jesus, I come to you. I give myself over into your hands. Let me begin to live a new life in you, I pray today. Hear me, Lord Jesus, I ask. Simple as that. Call on his name. Give yourself to him. Submit your life into his hands and care. He'll begin to lead you. The Holy Spirit will begin to talk to you. You'll find you have new thoughts coming into your mind that are guiding you and helping you because the Spirit of God will be at work in you. God's going to be working in you. Like this, I mean.